Turn with me this morning to Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4. If you're not aware, we are currently in a sermon series called The Hidden Prophets. And over the course of this year, we are walking through what are known as the minor prophets in the Old Testament. The minor prophets are not minor because they are of lesser importance than, say, major prophets. They are minor in the sense that the books that are associated with their teaching are smaller books compared to the major prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah, which are very long books. And so we're currently in the second book that we've looked at. We're taking these in chronological order. So not necessarily the order we find them in the Old Testament, but rather the order in which the events that take place in these books actually happened. And so this is our second book. We started with Jonah. Uh, We're now in Amos. And so today, Amos chapter 4, I'm going to read right now the first three verses in Amos 4, but we're going to look at more of this chapter today. So uh, I would keep my Bible open in front of me. If you don't have one or you don't have one on your phone, we've got several back here on our table. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't have one at home, please keep it. Let that be our gift to you today. Amos 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. So as we said, this is week four of our study of the book of Amos. Thus far, um, we have been introduced to the prophet Amos. Amos is actually not a prophet by trade. This is not what he has done for his entire adult life. But instead, he is primarily a shepherd from a place called Tekoa. Um, At this time, the nation of Israel historically is split in two. Um, and, And there's been a lot of infighting that has gone on between the two sides of the split. The southern kingdom which was formerly a part of Israel, is now called Judah. And that's significant because that's where the city of Jerusalem is. And then the northern and larger kingdom of Israel is to um, the north. And that is actually where Amos is sent, even though he is from the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's sent out by God and he is specifically sent to prophesy to the wealthy, sort of like cultural elites of his day. And at this time, under the reign of King Jeroboam II, Israel was experiencing a time of great prosperity that they hadn't really seen in a couple hundred years at this point. Uh, Their borders had been extended back out to what they had been uh, during the time of King David and King Solomon, which was sort of a golden age. Um, And there were very many wealthy people at this time. However, as we've seen, there was also a great deal of poverty. And the scripture does present it as a culture where the rich seem to be getting richer and the poor seem to be getting poorer. And specifically, the rich seem to be getting richer on the backs of the poor. So God sent Amos to boldly declare his word. And here's what what we've seen thus far in the book of Amos. First, we saw a set of eight oracles, which are like small prophecies, Uh, eight oracles that were presented in poetic form. And and most of these 
poems dealt with like places around Israel, other countries. We mentioned Ammon and Tyre and Judah and places like that. And what's interesting is uh, Amos mentions seven different places. And if you actually map those out and, and like connect the dots, it really forms like a big circle. And in the dead center of the circle is Israel. And so Amos got to his eighth oracle, and we learn that really all of this is directed at Israel. He is the true target, or they are the true target, rather, of Amos' prophecy. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw four charges levied against Israel in that eighth prophecy. All of them dealt with the way that the rich and the powerful had treated other people, namely the poor. And we said that we can sum up Everything that God was declaring through Amos by saying that Israel had effectively broken what is called the Shema. The Shema, or what is often known as the Great Commandment. It's what we read at the very beginning of the service. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. God sends Amos to declare to the people of Israel, you have not done this. You have not loved your neighbor as yourself, and so as a result, you have not loved me. That's the way these things are conjoined. That's what we said in recent weeks, that when we start talking about the great commandment, these are not two totally separate commandments. I can't love God in the way God wants me to love him and not love my neighbor as myself. Likewise, I cannot love my neighbor as myself if I'm not seeking to love God. So these things are intertwined. They are dependent on each other. And Amos says, you have not done this at all. Next, um, we're now in what we could think of as section two of Amos. If section one were those eight oracles in chapters one and two, Amos is now presenting like a series of monologues or a series of statements against Israel. And what we said last week was that each of these monologues begins with this Hebrew word Shema. It begins with this word that means listen or hear. The reason why the great commandment is referred to as the Shema is because it also begins in that way. In Deuteronomy, it begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is only one God. There are not other gods. So we're going to listen to him. And what he's telling us to do is to love him and to love our neighbors. And so now we get here into these monologues and each one begins with that same word. So one, it's a call to listen in a very basic sense. But it's also this this like reminder, this sort of shiv in their side that that's the thing you haven't been doing for this entire time. You haven't been listening to me. And so now listen to what's going to happen as a result of you not listening to me. And then finally, last week in chapter three, we noted that the tone that Amos employed was this kind of like judicial language as if the prosecution was sort of bringing its case against Israel. He uses rhetorical questions that they know the answers to. And and his intention is to point at God's wrath and God's anger. Amos said, the lion is roaring. Like, why would a lion roar unless his prey is in his sight? And other nations were metaphorically called to come and to be witness 
to Israel's sin. And the question we asked was this, how do we love God? Like if the thing that they haven't done is they haven't loved God, they haven't loved their neighbor, what does it even mean for us to love God? Like what does that even look like? And what we said was that the biblical answer to that question really does not revolve around how we feel about God, but rather, as Justin was saying just a few minutes ago, it really revolves around obedience to God. So so God isn't just looking for us to feel affectionate or grateful or thankful or warmly towards him, but rather his desire is that we would do what he tells us to do. That's always been the case. That's not some new revelation. It was true for Israel. It was true during the time of Christ. It's true today. And so what we said was, God is not interested in your affection if it is devoid of obedient action. Because he looks at that as hypocrisy. He sees the disconnect, even if we delude ourselves into thinking there isn't a disconnect. Just like you're probably not interested in the affection of your spouse if your spouse is a serial adulterer, right? Why would you be interested in the affection of your spouse if he or she is unfaithful to you? So God's desire is that we would be loyal to him and and the language that is used over and over again is royal language. It's the language of a king who desires his people to be loyal to him. A king who desires his people to be allegiant to him. And that's the direct opposite of what Israel has done. So today, with those things in mind, as we get into chapter four, Amos enters into this second monologue. And this time, rather than using judicial language, he employs sarcasm. And and he's kind of known for this. This is sort of a trademark for Amos among the minor prophets. So, So look with me back at verse one. He begins again with that word Shema here. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan. Who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. So clearly we're talking about women here. These women who say to their husbands, bring that we may drink. And and this is the sarcasm I'm talking about. Amos is directing his words at the wealthy women of Israel who are living in luxury and yet who oppress the poor and crush the needy. Uh, Bashan was this region that was known for its lush pasture lands. It was known for its well-fed livestock. And so Amos is effectively saying, listen up, you fat cows, right? Like this is how he's directing his language. This is his tone. Do you understand what you're doing? Man, as I read this, I can't help but think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, that parable that Jesus tells of a rich man who is just like living this life of lavish luxury. Uh, The scripture says he feasted sumptuously all the time, but he's living in this bubble where he is his like wealth and his luxury has has like insulated him from all the poverty that's around him. And, and, And like in Jesus's story, like poverty's not just kind of out there somewhere. It's literally on his doorstep. Like there's a, there's a poor man named Lazarus who is dying right outside this man's doorstep. And, and this guy has to like step over him to go about his day, to go about his business. And it's like he doesn't even see him. And meanwhile, he's going inside his home and he's shutting his door and he's feasting sumptuously while this guy's dying. 
outside. So as I read these words, like it makes me think of that account and, and the ways that we can insulate ourselves to the lives of other people around us, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in, in our city. So these are like the real housewives of Samaria, like, you know, like the real housewives of Israel that he's addressing here, who are just kind of laying around eating and drinking and living lives of luxury without giving a single care for the poor and needy. And what we will see, and we've already seen a little bit here in Amos, but we're going to see this over and over again in the Minor Prophets, is that this is something that God detests. God's heart is for the poor, both the physically poor and the spiritually poor. And and what God hates is when people who have resources like completely insulate themselves from the needs of people around them. Because in God's view, I have given you the resources that you have so that you can bless others. Look at verse 2. So that's who's in Amos' sights here at the beginning, and here's what comes next. And it's not good. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks. Even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. And, and obviously, like, that's not good, right? Like, this is a word of doom. Amos isn't coming declaring good news to these people. He's declaring the fact that bad things are coming. And it it like progresses as we walk through this book. It's like it begins as warning and the warning becomes more dire and it becomes more urgent. And it's getting closer and closer and closer. And, And even though the word of doom that's being proclaimed is not metaphorical, it's literal. At the same time, Amos is using metaphorical language of of like people being taken away with fish hooks and and many scholars think that the image here is, is something like, like, maybe like these people are being fattened up for the slaughter. But it's not something God's doing. It's something that they are doing to themselves. It's, it's a path that they have chosen. It's like a nation of people who are blind, not only to the Lord, but what the Lord would have for their lives. And so as a result, they are just mounting up sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. And as a result, they are just sort of preparing themselves for the terrible thing that is to come. Another image here could be that of a net that's like lowered into the water and it like comes up with this overflowing catch of fish. And and there's so many fish that they all have to be put on hooks so that they can be harvested and carried. And in the same way, a net of judgment is going to be lowered over Israel and the whole nation will, in a sense, be harvested. Now, historically, it's important for us to remember this comes to pass. Something like 50 years after the time that Amos declares this prophecy, the Assyrians do sweep in to Israel. And even though they were powerful, even though they had money, even though they had built up this great civilization, the Assyrians sweep in and literally wipe them out. And and it's never the same. It's never been the same since that happened. So this is exactly what Amos is pointing them towards and pointing us towards. 
Also, just a note here at the end of verse 3, it mentions the people being cast out into Harmon. And interestingly, this is the only place in the Bible where this place is mentioned, Harmon. We don't really know what it is or where it is. We don't know what it means for people to be taken there. But, but in the context of the prophecy, it can't be good. It's somewhat mysterious. And, and I think it's also somewhat fitting because ultimately when the Assyrians come in, they, they kill many, they destroy cities, and, and what happens is, is the tribes of Israel that are represented at that time are, are essentially scattered to the wind, never to really be reformed or reclaimed. And, and so in a sense, even though we don't know where this place is, or if it's a real place, or if it's a metaphorical place, it, it's kind of fitting because ultimately everybody gets scattered to who knows where. Where did they go? What happened to them? From there, Amos continues using his sarcasm to describe the pagan worship that these women or the people in general were engaging in. This is verses four and five. He says, yeah, 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 come to Bethel, come to Gilgal, which were historic places of Jewish worship and and just multiply transgression upon transgression because they weren't coming to those places to worship the God of Israel. They weren't coming to worship Yahweh. No, no, no. They've, They've given themselves over to all of these other gods. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping Asheroth, who were like gods of sex and And gods of war. And this is who they're giving themselves over to. Not the one true God. The one that we are to listen to because he is one. And so using sarcasm, Amos says, yeah, just, yeah, come on. Keep keep bringing your sacrifices. Keep offering like thanksgiving and praise to your false gods. Just, Just come on. Like keep coming to the altar. And see what happens. These gods who have done nothing for you. Come on. Now, imagine that you're hearing this. Imagine you're listening to what Amos is saying. It's quite possible that a question you would have, like if you've been like these women he's describing, if you've been living this insulated life, if you've been inside your bubble, it could be that you're asking questions like, why are we just now hearing about this? Like, if what you're saying is true, why hasn't God been, like, trying to tell us this before now? Like, why hasn't he been, like, sending other people? And, and the reality is, that's exactly what God has been doing for, for a pretty long period of time. If you look at verse 6, I'm just going to read a, a little bit of this. But God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, meaning nobody had food in their mouth. Nobody had, nobody had anything to eat. And lack of bread in all your places Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I I would send rain on one city or send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me. Like, Like, do you understand I'm doing things to like wake you up to get your attention? What do you mean where have I been? What about this? What about this? Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees. The locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Remember Egypt? Like, remember when I rescued you guys from Egypt? 
All, all those years ago, the stories that you've heard about your forefathers and what I did for them, I, I sent that same kind of stuff onto you. And yet you didn't wake up. You didn't turn to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Where have you been? Why haven't you been trying to get our attention? I have. I have. This is not new. He ends this chapter by saying, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts is his name. It's not Baal, it's not Asheroth, it is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what do you mean, why did I not try to get your attention? Look at all these opportunities I've given you. Look at all these chances I've given you to wake up. Now, in this instance, Amos is describing, obviously, negative ways that the Lord has sought the people Drought, pestilence. But notice the purpose wasn't punishment here. No, no, no. The purpose was grace. God's desire was not just to punish people or inflict wrath on people or sin pestilence or famine or drought or any of those things just for the sake of doing that. No, no, no. His desire was that they would recognize, oh man, like we've totally strayed from the way of the Lord and that they would turn back to him. That's the reason behind this. It's grace. The Lord has also used positive situations and blessings in order to call them to himself. Remember, like they had expanded their borders. And remember, they're living in this time of great wealth and prosperity. God's not removed from that. Those are things he had done in their midst as well. But there, there doesn't seem to be anything that will like get their attention or open their eyes or open their ears And I would say as well that there does seem to be something significant about hardship and crisis and the way that the Lord uses hardship and crisis and failure to wake us up to what he's doing. Because it's in the midst of hardship and crisis that it's like you have to make more of a conscious decision. Am I really going to keep following the path that I've been on? When this is the kind of stuff that's happening? Or am I going to try to like get on another road? Am I, am I going to try to align myself with the will of God? Whereas when things are good, yeah, man, let's just stay on the road we're on. Let's just keep down this path. But, but in hardship, in crisis, in failure, maybe there's something that makes you go, I don't want to keep living this way. I don't want to, I don't want to keep... Falling into this pit. I don't want to keep doing things this way. Guys, we cannot underestimate the importance of crisis, hardship, failure in our lives. Think about the Apostle Peter who denied Christ three times. Like who, in in that instance, is this massive failure of a disciple. Like you cannot tell me that that experience was not deeply formational to him. That that experience didn't have impact on 
the apostle that he ultimately becomes. Now, while all of the broken things in our world exist because of sin and because of the fall and are not necessarily things we should like hope for or pray for, the Lord can still use them for his glory. And because our world is broken, they are things that come. So a natural question is, does God still do things like this today? Does God still use the circumstances of our lives to form us or mold us? To get our attention, to wake us up? And, and listen, I, I believe the answer is yes. I believe the answer is yes. But I want to be careful that we have a biblical picture of God in all of this. Because there are a few things more important in your spiritual life than the mental picture you have of God. It really does influence a great deal about who you are and how you view him and how you view the world. So if your picture of God is that, if your picture of God is something like he's nothing but vengeful, or he's just up there kind of waiting for me to mess up so he can punish me, I would say you have an unbiblical picture of God. Whereas if your picture of God is that he is holy, and so as a result, all of sin is an affront to him. But despite that, his, his great love for us compels him to not only send his son Jesus to die so that we would be freed from the penalty of sin and reconciled to him, but also the fact that he gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to him in faith. Like if that's your view of God, then I think you have a more biblical picture of who God is. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in mercy. His forgiveness can be seemingly endless. And, and even here with Israel, this is not something that's happened overnight. No, no, no. God has been bearing with them for generations, for hundreds of years. But notice the opportunities that Amos is talking about, mostly negative experiences. So a question today is, how do you know if God is using an experience in your life to get your attention? And I want to give you a tool today that I've, I've really found to be helpful in my life. I came across this many years ago. Um, it's called a Kairos Circle. Um, it's in the bulletin this morning. I'm going to put it up here on the screen in just a moment. But let me just uh, kind of unpack these words for you real quick. In the Greek language, there are two words for time. Um, there's chronos. Um, which is where we get our word chronology. It's linear time. It was 1 o'clock. It's now 2 o'clock. That's chronos. The other Greek word for time is the word kairos. And kairos is different than linear time. Kairos is more like a moment in time. Or, or what some people might call an opportune moment. And sorry, it's a little hard to read in your bulletin, but you can see it up here on the screen. And and. This is something that, as I said, was developed by a guy named Mike Green, and uh, I've, I've always found this to be really helpful. Here's how he describes a Kairos moment. It's, it's any, any kind of significant moment in your life that causes you to have some kind of pause. This could be a really positive moment. It could be an incredibly negative moment. But rarely is it just kind of in the middle. It, it, it's normally one extreme or the other. And especially in negative moments like 
what the prophet Amos has been mentioning with regards to Israel, especially in negative moments, what we tend to do is not actually stop and sit with those negative moments and sort of process those negative moments. But instead, what we want to do is we want to like push it down and not deal with it, not think about it, not process it, not seek the Lord surrounding it. We want to kind of push it down and just like move on, maybe as if it didn't happen. As if I'm like totally fine. And, and hopefully you know that's not healthy. Like in general, no matter who you are, like whenever you experience trauma or you experience something terrible in your life or you experience a negative situation, if you don't deal with it, if you don't think about it, if you push it down, if you just move on, you've just delayed like an inevitable response. Like it's going to come out at some point. It's going to manifest itself at some point, probably in some kind of unexpected way. But it's not healthy, it's not positive. And so the idea here is that in those moments we're stopping and, and we're like, rather than just continuing on the path that we're on, we're stopping and we're working our way around this circle. And to use the language of Jesus, like in Mark 1.15, which is Jesus' call to repent and believe, that's ultimately what we're doing here. Because as we mature in Christ throughout our lives, that's the work that we're having to do over and over and over and over again. It's, it's why we confess our sins every week when we're together. It's been, Lord, what do I need to repent of and what do I need to believe? Because one of the things we say all the time is that we're all unbelievers in, at, at some level. Like none of us believe the gospel perfectly 100% of the time. None of us believe doctrine perfectly 100% of the time. There are some things we believe fully, and then there are some things that are a struggle for us, some things that we wrestle with. And so as we work through this process, we are ultimately saying, what is God saying to me, and how will I obey Him? Right? How will I repent? How will I believe? And so it begins with just observing what's going on, what was the experience, what was the kairos moment that made you stop so if you're, if you're a journaler, this is a great opportunity for you to write those things down. Like, what was your experience? What was your encounter? Then you reflect, spend some time with it, sit with it, reflect on it, consider all the various angles, consider the different people who are involved. From there, discuss it. This is, we might do a little bit of those first two things, but this is normally where we stop, where I've, I've got to go like, sit with somebody and talk about this thing. I need to process this with somebody else. And sadly, if any of us do that kind of stuff, sadly, we're maybe only doing it with like a counselor. Now, I say sadly because while that's perfectly fine and good, and I think, I think everybody should be in counseling because I, I, it's an incredibly helpful thing. The reality is, is this kind of work should be happening within the body of Christ. Like it should be happening within the church. Like you should have people in your church community that you are close enough to that you can sit down and go, man, I, I just need to like, I need to just, I need to vent or I need to talk or I need to share this with somebody. I need to dialogue a bit with somebody. So we're going to discuss it. But, but then from there, we're not stopping. Then from there is, so, so what do I do differently? How, how do I need to proceed from here, right? What is God asking me to do? And then from there, partnering with somebody. Who do I need 
to hold me accountable? Who, who do I need to encourage me? Who do I need to remind me of, of what I said I wanted or what I said the Lord was calling me to do? And then ultimately I need to act on it. And it mentions, is my goal smart? That's an acrostic for, is it strategic? You know, is it measurable? You may, you may have heard that before, but um, the idea here is that it's, it's not just me coming to a place where I understand something mentally, but it's coming to the place where I live differently. And, and so the idea here is that when you come back up at the top, you're not on the same trajectory that you were on when you entered into this process, but instead you're on a different trajectory. And it's a trajectory of growth. Like that this ultimately is the process of sanctification, right? This is the process of discipleship. This is how God is forming us into the image of Christ. It's through both positive and negative situations in our life so that we can come out on the other side in a different place. Does that make sense? So so does God use the circumstances of our lives to form us and shape us and to wake us up and to get our attention? You, You better believe he does, right? We've talked about this before, but the language of discipleship in the New Testament is primarily negative language. Pruning. Right? We, we read the scripture earlier of abiding in the vine. And what does it say? What? Any, any vine or any branch that does not bear fruit, what happens? It gets cut off and thrown into the fire. And the branches that do bear fruit, what does the vine dresser do? He prunes those branches. There are things he cuts off of those branches. So that's the language. Pruning, refining, sharpening. Words that kind of sound negative. But yet it is for your flourishing. Like if the vine is going to flourish, it's not just does it bear fruit. It's like, but but could it bear more fruit? Could it be pruned in such a way that it is even healthier than it is now? And for all of us, the answer is unequivocally yes. Absolutely. Like we could all be living healthier lives than we're living now. And I don't just mean physically. I mean spiritually. Could we all be believing more fully in the work of Christ? Could we all be finding our our identity more fully in Christ? Yes, yes, yes. So what are these moments in your life? When I start talking about like opportune moments or moments that have left a significant impact on you, or it could be something happening right now or something that, that has happened in the past, like have you actually stopped and dealt with those and said, God, what are you trying to show me? What do I need to repent of here? What do I need to believe here? Let us go to him in prayer this morning. And I want to ask him as we pray, and and you pray this on your own, I want to ask him that he would reveal these things to us. Because if you're like me, I can can walk through life oblivious to some of this stuff. To how I really feel. To what's really going on inside of me. I don't know if you're that way or not, but let's pray this morning that the Lord would not only reveal these things to us, but that he would use them for his glory that he would give us grace as we seek to press into them so that we might learn and grow and that he would truly surround us with lovers of Jesus who want to invest, who want to listen, want to hold us accountable. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you use our lives, even, even the good times and the bad times, God, to shape us and mold us into who you would have us be. And Father, I pray that you would reveal to us the things that you are doing even right now to show us who you are, to awaken us to your presence, 
to direct us and guide us. Father, show us how to process what we're experiencing. Surround us with people who can help us in that, God. And not just so that we might understand ourselves better or understand you better, but so that we might live differently. That we might live more generous, patient, faithful, less self-centered lives. Seeking to love our neighbors and to love you in the way that you've called us. Help us to have grace for ourselves and grace for others as we engage this process, God. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.